Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on how our Neanderthal ancestors' will to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind, body, and soul. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock thousands of years to discuss all aspects of our Neanderthal ancestors. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Hello, cave dwellers, and welcome to episode 18 of the Neanderthal Mind. My goodness, episode 18. Still a newborn in the podcast world and the Neanderthal realm, but we'll keep on trucking and continue to bring you information on our ancestors and how they affect our modern existence. In this episode, we sit down with Seth Chagi. Seth, as I'm sure most of my cave dwellers know, is the founder of World of Paleoanthropology. It is a Facebook group and a STEM SciComm project, which we discuss, to make all news and research about human origins available to the public in a free and accessible way that we would be able to study and understand. As Seth says, and I quote, through this understanding, we can search for the answers to our questions surrounding our origins. The one thing that strikes me that Seth said, and again I quote, we are all human. We all came from the same source. That hits the heart especially in today's atmosphere, we all need to understand we are all human. We may have been made to look different on the outside, but we are entirely the same on the inside where the heart is. As mentioned, we will get into Seth's journey for open, free, and accessible information. We will talk about, and I'm sure you all could agree, We need more education of our ancestral beginnings in our school system. We set the story straight on the pronunciation of Neanderthal or Neanderthal, which from other interviews, it doesn't seem to matter too much the way it's pronounced, as long as we all know what we're talking about. So whether you're a Neanderthal or a Neanderthal, we're all looking for the same information. Of course, we will discuss Seth's baby and heart project, World of Paleoanthropology Facebook group, which uh, I think is seven, 8,000 members or something now. So he's getting up there. It might even be more than that. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a pretty big Facebook group, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of interaction on it and a lot of information. So check it out if you get the chance. Of course, I'll include the, uh, the links in the show notes to his Facebook group. Um, I will also include links to Seth's YouTube channel uh, where he does uh, some educational information and some interviews as well. Um, We go into, which I like to ask all of my guests this question, what led you to paleoanthropology and the realm of the Neanderthals? We, of course, go into theories of evolution Again, which is another question I like to ask my guests. Uh, We talk about some new discoveries of Neanderthal religion. 
And then to uh, wrap things up, or at least to uh, start heading towards the end of the interview, we talk about cognitive revolution, which occurred during the Pleistocene, which was 2.5 million to 11,700 years ago, and the Holocene, which is 11,700 years ago to the present time. So, as I always say, my fellow cave dwellers, sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and I will see you on the flip side. Well, hey, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out to join me tonight. Oh, definitely. It's my pleasure. I'm not used to being the one being interviewed, so (laughs) I'm looking forward to this. (laughs) Well, I hope I don't fail you on that end of things. Uh, Still kind of new at it as well, just, uh, you know, getting my feet wet in it, so... Yeah. Yeah, I just I threw together a few questions. Um, you know, again, like I said, thank you. I appreciate you uh wanting to come on the podcast with me. It's you know, trying to um uh, getting together with other podcasters. Like I had uh, Gabby LaPera. Uh she does the I think it's anthro anthrobiology podcast. You had said uh, you were interested in possibly starting a podcast. And uh, that's what the that's what uh, kind of triggered me to to ask you to come on. I mean, I would love to start a podcast, honestly, with other people. I think that would be a great idea. A lot of times they'll do uh, with podcasting, you know, where if, if one, I, I guess to get guests on the podcast, you could say, you know, hey, you know, I got you, you're coming on this podcast here. You know, I work with another podcast, which would, you know, whatever your podcast would be called you know, would you like to interview with them? Or, you know, you would do the same in reverse, you know, just, and I can't think of the name of it right now, what uh, what they call it. There is a term for it, but I am drawing a blink right now. <laughs> and I, I don't think I know it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit here. So anyways, so usually I start uh, with my podcast. I just kind of do a little icebreaker, which I guess this, uh, Technical difficulties, more of an icebreaker than what we need, but uh, (laughs) tell me about yourself. All right. Well, my name is Seth Chalky. I am a student in California. I just graduated with two AAs, one in anthropology and one in social sciences. And I, next semester, I'm going to university to specifically study biological or physical anthropology. And will then, after that, pursue my PhD in the same field. And I love to read, write, and one of my favorite things to do is to communicate science and educate those who would not necessarily have access to this knowledge without someone helping them. Meaning people that, you know, they'd never heard of what a hominid is. Like, what is that? Who, you don't, you don't learn about that in elementary school, at least where I'm from. And I live in a very, you know, as far to the left, literally as you can get in the United States. And, um, So I just feel like there's a gap in education that specifically in the state that we're, I'm going way off course here. So that's That's a little bit about me. No, that's okay. (laughs) Keep going. It's okay. It's conversation. We're, we're, we're talking, man. It's all good. Yeah. I'm sure, uh, 
you know, your, your uh, community as well as mine likes to, you know, find out about you, likes to know what you're about. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into some other questions on kind of what led you to where we are today. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, keep on going. Let, let us know what, right. uh, what you're about. So um, to pick up where I left off then, you know, there's these, this gap in education where, and specifically during the time that we're in right now, where there's such racial tensions and economic and social tensions that a lot of these things would at least be eased if, say, we could all agree we came from the same source, if that we are all human, we're all the same creature, where there's no differences between us, we are human and we have one single origin. Knowing that so many problems would either not exist today or would be definitely much less of an oppressive problem. So educating the next generation and educating this generation and even people that are much older than me, um, I have found just I love to see people's faces light up when they go, oh, so that's why that happened. And that makes sense. And just to so many people, even spanning religious spectrums have come to me and learned a lot about our origins. And it just makes me so happy that I'm able to help them with that and spread that knowledge and that's the biggest part for me is spreading the knowledge and doing it in a way that's accessible for all yeah that's and, and even with uh you know like i said with like gabby lapera and uh you know a lot of actually quite a few of the interviews that i've had that's their sentiment as well is you know trying to spread that knowledge that's kind of what i was hoping I'm hoping for the Neanderthal mind is to, to, you know, get more people involved in it, or at least to get a better understanding, you know, because again, before I even got into the Neanderthal mind, I always had that stereotype that our Neanderthals were, you know, just lug heads that, you know, swung big logs, you know, like, like Captain Caveman or what have you, you know, right, but, right. Uh, the more and more that I get into this, the more and more I find out. And, and it obviously not obviously, but it, it starts to make more sense that how could they have been that unintelligent and, you know, that barbaric if they've lasted, you know, if they lasted for three or four or 500,000 years, you know. So, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree with trying to get that, uh, get that knowledge out there and, and make it more available to, to everyone, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I, I'm, and it, it is interesting to, ponder why that type of education is not expressed in our school systems you know on where we came from and how we got here yeah uh i mean i definitely think that obviously depends on where you come from in the world and even in the same country such as the united states depending on which state you're from the curriculum can change and unfortunately in my opinion there is not a separation of church and state when it comes to education and religious opinions are allowed where scientific ones should be, in my opinion. Of course, it's not everyone's opinion, but 
Um, and then there are some countries that they will kill you for talking about it. Uh, there are, it you know, can span a wide range of reasons to why this education is not available. But I think it's up to those who have the opportunity to learn and to explore these things. Um, I think it's up to them, up to us to really share that knowledge in a safe and educational way. I know like, for example, let's just say South Africa, you know, 200 years ago, they weren't really concerned very much with what was going on hominin evolution wise in the area. But now there are more and more South African scientists, which is a great thing that people from South Africa are embracing this information and putting it to good use by the meaning that they are becoming scientists, they're educating, they are using the information to build better structures and live better lives. And I think that just depends on where you're from. I didn't learn it in elementary school and I live in California, which I am not ashamed to say is one of the most liberal and well-off states in the country. And yet we still don't even talk about it. And, and um, no, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Um, just to add on, um, there's just such a stigma against it in general, really all over the world that we're trying to combat. Well, you know, and with California, like you had said, um, I, I interviewed uh, Alan Van Arsdale. I know we see him a lot on the Facebook posts and everything. And uh, mm -hmm. he's actually from, you know, from that area. And uh, uh, he was into the, you know, anthropology and, and discovering some fossils. And I mean, I, I guess California does have a pretty rich history with, well, I guess there haven't been any Neanderthal um skeletal remains found yet but you know there's remains or artifacts from those time periods that are, are pretty prevalent over in california you know so not to it would be nice for them to embrace the history that has created the country you know there are definitely some interesting sites in california um but i don't know if any would i mean there's some interesting sites but yeah people need to in general embrace where they come from. Um, I think as far as California goes and discovering what laid here, I think we're kind of, I don't think there's much to discover as far as biological anthropology goes per se. I don't think there's any, any evolution has occurred in the Americas. Um, but culturally, definitely. But this is all my opinion. Um, but yeah, the Centurion Mammoth in San Diego is a very interesting uh, find. But the call is still out whether that's a natural occurrence or something that was caused by humans.
I hope they do more studying and and it would be awesome for them to find Neanderthal remains in the Americas. That would be awesome. Specifically, obviously, North America, where we are, (laughs) you know, just so we can stake our claim to the uh, um, evolutionary chain in the sense, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if if there was such a find, it would definitely change pretty much everything we know about them as far as their range goes. uh, but the fact that there hasn't been, to my knowledge, anything relating to Neanderthals in the Americas, I don't know how much hope there is for that, unfortunately. But who knows? I'm My hope really is finding a um, preserved Neanderthal in Siberia. I think that is much more likely and would be much more interesting like a fully preserved, like they pull mammoths out. Um, I think that would be a very interesting find. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And, and but you know, and and getting into the new discoveries, it's it seems like every every day there's a you know a post somewhere or something. You know, like you had uh, I think John John Berger is that his name correct? Uh, the the one guy you interviewed. Lee Berger. Berger? Lee, Lee, Lee. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John is John Hawks, I think. Yes, the yes. And there's John Hawks <laughs> okay. and there's Lee Berger. I've kind of mixed the two together. And they are friends okay. though, and collaborate. So okay. I understand your confusion. Very good. <laughs> but the, uh, the point is, is you know, it's like every day, uh, you know, I, I believe they're anthropologists. I'd imagine, um, you know, just making new discoveries everywhere we turn. You know, it seems like there's a. Uh, you know, new uh, remains being found and new information, you know, in regards to, uh, you know, our evolutionary chain. Oh, so that's pretty exciting. Definitely. Um, It seems this, you know, there was before this, what people referred to today, this golden age of anthropology, you know, we're talking about Lewis Leakey and Philip Tobias and, you know, um, all these famous paleoanthropologists. And then we come to this period where the excavations aren't picking up as many things. We aren't seeing what there is to find. And it seemed to fade and public interest seemed to fade and there were no more fossils. And then all of a sudden we have some people finding certain things. We have Artipithecus, we have um lucy of course then things picked up with lucy when lucy was discovered things really picked up and she became because of don johansson's efforts a media icon and ever since then paleoanthropology has been in pop culture and has been something at least on the minds of many americans Uh, You know, most Americans will at least know what a Neanderthal or Neanderthal is, even if they have that old caveman misconception, they'll at least know it was an early human or something. Um, And go ahead. No, no, no. I I was, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. I was trying to remember. Um, I forgot where I was. <laughs> well, I apologize for doing no, that. No, no, I did but it so, myself. 
<laughs> so now I had uh, uh, another gentleman on, Toby, Toby Passman, and he had, I think it was him who had asked me, you know, is there, I guess, talking to, uh, you know, paleo paleoanthropologist or paleontologist, or is there uh, a preference between Neanderthal or Neanderthal? And do they get offended whenever we say Neanderthal? Okay, so I actually have a perfect <laughs> explanation for this. Okay. Um, and some people aren't going to like it, but it is simply just the way it is. And I'll explain how I view it after because I actually think it has a nice purpose. But it's technically, to my knowledge, correctly pronounced Neanderthal because it is Neander, which is the name of the valley that the first skull was found in, and Tall is valley in German. So Neander Valley, Neander Tall. Um, Neanderthal, of course, is how it's spelled, and you're not wrong in saying, I don't mean you as you personally, but people aren't wrong in saying it that way. It's just a language, you know, transition that happens when you're translating two different languages. But I think of it as a Neanderthal is this well-sophisticated, cultured hominin, you know, that we know it is today. And a Neanderthal is that caveman that we used to think they were, those big old lugs, you know, with the big branches and everything. And so I think it serves a purpose that there are two, but personally i use neanderthal i appreciate that explanation and yeah and it's you know I've, I've actually always wondered that too whenever i'm you know interviewing uh you know everyone it's like oh am i offending them by saying neanderthal <laughs> <laughs> you know so i'll have to work on saying neanderthal definitely i'll have to work on that but i appreciate that explanation i mean i would hope no one would get offended over it but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully not hopefully not <laughs> but yeah well, I'll tell you what, let's let's move on. Let's so let's talk about something that is that I'm, I believe is near and dear to your heart, which would be the your uh, Facebook world of paleoanthropology. Yes, man, you're up to almost five thousand members now, huh? Yes, the group itself is up to almost five thousand members, and then our Facebook page is almost to I think eighteen thousand likes. Holy so. <laughs> And we have a reach because you can, you know, look in Facebook and see your analytics and insights and everything. We actually reach about 60,000 people a week. So our impact is quite larger than it seems just on the surface, but it is a constant effort to keep that page running. And it's so much fun, but it is not the only page that I run. And um, it, it's definitely dedication, but it's my favorite thing to do outside of doing things with my wife. And um, it's just, it's my passion. And while I am, while I'm a student and I am learning all these things, I kind of want to take people with me and allow them to learn with me as I go and share the knowledge with them as I learn it. And then, of course, share news and things like that. So it's kind of like a science journalism page where it's 
easily accessible for anyone to just get the news and access information in easily explained ways. You don't have to be a scientist to understand the information you're going to get from my page. You could be anyone. And then, um, you know, there's just a wide variety of people who come and visit the page, comments on things and get in discussions. And you learn a lot. And what our most popular thing is, is our interview series, which is where I bring on, it started out as a written thing where I would contact an anthropologist or a professor or something and ask if they wanted to participate in a written interview. So we've got about five of those on our website. And, um, and some of the people that are included in that is like Chris Stringer, Ian Tattersall, um, some prominent people that I plan on getting back on now that I switched to video to redo their interviews on video. And then when we switched to video, we really got things picking up. Uh, we had Lee Berger on a few times, who is the uh, one in charge of everything going on with Homo Naledi and the lead discoverer, of course. Uh, we've had John Hawks on, Rebecca Rag Sykes, author of Kindred, which I know you've had on as well. Um, and just quite a few prominent people and my goal is really to just show, this is what I tell people when I'm inviting them onto the show. I'm not going to ask you questions. This is just going to be a conversation and it's going to be, it's going to be about whatever you want. I want this to be an inside look into you, your job, and how you're affecting the world of paleoanthropology. So I invite these people on. And they come and they just talk about themselves. And I just kindly and easily lead them down avenues of asking questions of figuring things out of how they do things, why, where, and when. And I think we're up to, we just put in our 16th interview and I've already got a few quite exciting ones that I'm not ready to announce yet in the pipeline. Um, I kind of went on a little frenzy and recorded three and released three in three weeks instead of waiting and doing one a month, but I will go back to a regular release schedule. I got a little excited and, <laughs> um, and so we definitely have more guests planned and we're going to experience some really cool stuff. And I'm going to ask some of our previous guests to return as well and update us on their projects and what they're doing. Because as you said, every day there's like a new discovery. It seems like every day something new is happening. And even the people we visited a year ago, their story could be, aside from their story, the story of paleoanthropology could be completely different than it was a year ago. So we want to really make sure we're covering that because I know that and I'm actually a little nervous about this when I was in taking my anthropology classes in college before going to the university the teacher did her best to keep up with what was going on but the textbooks and everything else were just so outdated and it really makes things difficult 
to educate people when they're coming from a place of misinformation versus a blank slate. So I'm kind of nervous going into university to see what where they're at and how updated they are or if I'm going to be way ahead of everyone else. Um, but it'll be interesting and that's just what we do at the World of Paleoanthropology. It's all about open access and science communication, getting that information from the scientists to the public in the easiest, most convenient and best way possible. And that's when you mentioned earlier, I was thinking about starting a podcast. So I'm thinking about doing that. And I'm always trying to think of innovative ways to just get in touch with people. I'm making connections and establishing hopefully what will be long-term relationships with certain foundations and individuals that I hope to bring together in ways that will benefit everyone. And um, that's what we do. That's awesome. That's very admirable. And I, and, I, and I appreciate that, you know, because again, I'm, I'm probably, well, I'm definitely newer to it than you are. Like you have uh, an education in, uh, you know, the uh, Neanderthal or well, paleo, you know, paleoanthropology and everything. Mm -hmm. Me, I have no education whatsoever in it at all. <laughs> like I, you know, like I said, when, before I started this podcast, which, um, you know, I've only been going for, I don't know, maybe four or five, six months now. I, you know, I, I again, had the stereotypical uh, vision in my mind of, you know, what cavemen really, you know, what they, what, what I was taught that they were, you know? Right, but, right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, appreciate, uh, definitely appreciate you as well as the others, you know, who are involved in it, bringing that to light. And again, like we, we touched on before, making it more of a, uh, you know, uh, accessible by the public. Right, definitely. And that is definitely the goal because, like you said, you just, you didn't have any education about it. And I only had access to it when I got to college. So that wasn't that long ago. And that was after high school. So I had no idea what any of this stuff was. For me, I was really lucky. I am actually the year I took Anthropology 101 our biological anthropology 101 was 2013, which is the year that Lee Berger announced Homo Naledi. So it was a very exciting time and everyone was a buzz and everything. And it was a good field to be in. It still is obviously with all the recent discoveries still going on all over South Africa and Africa in general um, and Europe, of course, with the Neanderthals, but it's just been, a whirlwind it feels like yeah and you know again just touching on you know how how you want to get your previous guests on because the way things change uh like you said you know i i, I did i interviewed uh, rebecca rag sykes uh i, re, I uh, interviewed ea megs i don't know if you had a chance to get into her dreamer book series um but you know that was the question i posed to them you know you're writing books and then tomorrow something new comes out and you've already finished that chapter. Now you got to go back and, <laughs> you know, and uh, remodify the, you know, the, the new findings in your book, you know? So yeah, it's definitely an exciting time for, for, you know, for this uh, field, you know? Definitely. And not that I'm qualified at this time to write a book in any, by any means, but when I am, I definitely plan to, and I plan on writing it in a way that is very clear that this information could be outdated at any moment. So 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's good to go into it with that mindset. So it's not, uh, you know, so so abrupt of a change for you, I guess. But uh, so let's um, so let's um, get to you know you have your paleoanthropology uh, uh, Facebook and website. Now let's touch a little bit on what I guess my question is: when or where or how did your path into paleoanthropology start? Like, what got you into it? That's a fun question. And, you know, I don't know if I've ever really just sat and really thought about it because it was very abrupt. So originally I graduated high school and I was going to community college for a deaf studies major, like for American Sign Language. I was going to be a deaf interpreter. Um, And that was fun and everything, but it just it wasn't clicking so well as I got into more of the advanced classes. And so I took that anthropology 101 class just as a general requirements class. And I just fell in love with all of it. Like day one, we opened up those books and it was like, how have I not heard of this? This is making so much sense. You know, like it was just, it was amazing. It was literally a light bulb turning on moment. And um, I don't remember if the stuff was even up to date at the time, but it didn't, I don't think it was, but it didn't matter. It was learning all the stuff for the first time. I didn't know what was, you know, accurate, what wasn't. It was just exciting. And then, as I said, Homo Naledi was announced and it was like, whoa this is exploding right now like let's get in on this while the gold is good and um I just dove deeply into it and I have not come out of it yet I this passion has been overwhelming yeah it's been an obsession and Homo Naledi remains my favorite uh hominid so far just because of that um but yeah, it just, it happened abruptly. I just took that class and something in my mind just clicked and went, this just makes so much sense. This is so interesting. I read like the whole textbook before a quarter way through the class and was, you know, reading other books and following every news article I could find. And it was just, I got to a point where honestly, I felt like I had, was done with the class way before the class was over and wanted just more. There just was not enough in that one-on-one class. So I took every other anthropology class the college offered. And so now I'm at the point where I'm going to university and I'm very excited to see where that's going to lead. Now again, what was the timeline with that? Like when when did you start the school and then when did you start uh, your uh, website and Facebook? So in order to answer this, I guess I'll have to admit something. Um, So I am, the word awful does not begin to describe how bad I am at mathematics. That's okay. So I I started I'm I'm right there with you. My my brain shuts down when numbers start getting thrown at me, but go ahead. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I graduated high school in 2013 started college in 2013 
And that was my first semester. I guess I only did one semester of sign language. I guess I really wasn't doing it very much, very long. Um, and Homo Naledi was announced that year. And so that was 2013. And I finished all my classes by 2015, but have been struggling to do my math units since then up until now, which I finally graduated last semester with those two degrees I mentioned. I didn't even know I was getting the second degree. I was taking, I was just taking so many classes while I was taking the math over and over again that I earned a second degree. So it took me quite a while to get through school, but I just want to know, you know, for anyone listening to this, and this has been something I've really struggled with personally, but everyone's on their own timeline. And, you know, you, there's always, opportunities to go back to school or to resume where you were or it might take you longer than it takes everyone else because you know community college is supposed to only take you two years I took I can't even count like that's how bad at math I am um so then we come to paleo my world of paleoanthropology page which I believe I launched in 2017 so it had been four years since the discovery of um, Homo Naledi and me getting involved in anthropology. So we had that going, or I had that going, and it just developed and developed. And I got the idea to interview people and it kind of just, it wasn't so much that I had to, the hardest thing was just earning people's respect and putting my foot out the door. You'd be surprised. And I'm telling you this as a fellow, uh, you know, podcaster, video or whatever we're calling ourselves. Sure, sure. Um, if you just find these professors' contact information, which is public information, it's listed by the schools or something, and you email them, of course, some you may never hear from, but I've learned that anthropologists are extremely excited to talk about anthropology. So they <laughs> will agree to come on and they'll love talking to you and sharing what they know. So if you just put your foot out there and just email them and just say, hey, I'm from blank, I wanna do this. Are you interested? You know, they're really actually quite accommodating. So, it's been very exciting and I've made a lot of great connections that I know will hopefully help me as I traverse my own academic courses. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Good. I like, yeah, I like that. And then, you know, like you had mentioned, that's kind of what I've been doing is I try and uh, probably send out three, four, five uh, emails a week, you know, to, to, to professors or, uh, you know, even uh, other book authors or whatever it is. So yeah, I keep throwing it good. out there. And, yeah. uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. I know uh, recently I've uh, had some pretty good luck with, um, I think it's called pod guest booking, I think is the name of the, of the, the uh, website and the, uh, I think that's what it's called pod guest booking. I've gotten, I've probably got, maybe the next four four or five interviews I got from them and it, it happened in, in a week easily that I got to, you know my, my future guests from them so podcast booking was pretty good for me now yeah. you um 
had mentioned in the um, uh, the pre-interview information that you know something, and I think we touched on it a little bit earlier, but uh, you had mentioned something about open access. You want to elaborate more on? Yes. So, open access is extremely important to me, and what open access is is allowing the public, other scientists, the data that is collected by the scientists. Previously. Um, prior to really Homo Naledi's discovery, I mean, there were a few that did this, but really Lieberger was the pioneer of this in my mind, at least as far as I know. Um, you, what would happen is you would have a scientist who would find something, let's say a skeleton, a finger, a cranium, whatever, and it would be in their permitted land and they would get to examine it and study it for as long as they needed without granting access to anyone else. So these scientists in some cases would have a fossil for 20 years and no one could see it or learn anything about it and they would die before publishing their paper. And then the paper would get published after and the fossil would be returned to the National Museum or wherever it came from. And there are scientists who still think that access should be secluded to only those who are specifically working on the teams that are working on these fossils. And I'm not gonna name names, but I don't agree with them. And I do not think that is the way of the future or how this field is evolving. Um, but what open access is, is instead of holding that fossil close and dear to your heart for 20 years, it's okay, we found it, announced it, here it is, we're going to publish a paper in a journal that you don't have to pay for, and we're going to give you all the information, not naming any journals or anything, you have to pay a lot of money to access these articles on average, and you know, Again, it's getting this information to the common man. And the common man is, does not want to pay to get the information. They're going to decide not to. And so what's the point of even putting it out there if it's only for other scientists? So it's really about opening it up, opening it up from just scientists, which is what Lee Berger did. He filmed it. He brought in National Geographic. He had the whole thing recorded. The whole expedition was on Twitter, he did the whole thing publicly, and his findings are released as they go, and it's just amazing the difference that the public has had in perception of Homo Naledi and Lee Berger's work. It really goes to show the difference in someone's thinking when you think only a certain group of people should be allowed access to something, whereas someone else thinks it should be open to everyone. And I think as a, I think it's fair to say at this point that I can call myself somewhat of a junior science um, communicator that take leaving it in those vaults is not where it needs to be. It needs to be in the hands of people and it needs to be explained and it needs to be basic information that everyone can know. Because like I said in the beginning of our talk, 
there are so many systemic issues that are plaguing us in today's society that I think would be reduced, if not even existing, if we all believed and understood the basic fact that we all come from the same place and that humankind is all the same race and there's nothing dividing us. Now, do you think withholding that access, do you think it's a... Uh like a pride thing, you know, for those particular individuals or? Um, there's a few reasons. Of course, I am not these people, nor do I follow their works that strongly. And I don't really know how their minds work, but I would assume obviously there's some sort of pride involved you know look at me I found this it's mine to do the research on I would assume there's at least a little bit of that but there I think it's more of specifically just thinking of the person I'm thinking of I would say it's more out of a need to be perfect if you let the people in and let everyone do research on it there's going to be a lot more things published about it and it's true and some of it's going to be inaccurate and some of it's going to need to be peer reviewed. All of it should be peer reviewed. Um, and some of it's not going to be and misinformation is going to get out of there. So if you only have a small team publishing its own papers when they're ready and perfected, then you're going to have a more specific idea of the fossil description or whatever it is. But the waters get muddled once you open the access. But... If you do it right, which we're seeing people and individuals do, like with the Dremelin site and um, the 105 site, uh, just to name a few that are currently going right now, they are doing it where the information is still being able to be accessed by the public, by publishing in journals that are free to access, but they are still maintaining control over the general idea and specific technicalities of the remains very good <laughs> very good explanation i appreciate that you know again like we touched earlier it seems there might be a correlation between the two but you know it seems like the ones that you know the, the, my previous guests that i've interviewed they feel the same way about having open access mm -hmm. And there may, might be, and that, that could be a correlation as to why they're coming on the show and your show as well is because they want their, they want there to be open access. And then the ones that you can't get to come on to our shows are those ones who don't appreciate or who are not for open access. So I, I can see the correlation between the two. Definitely. It definitely is an interesting correlation and I would agree with you there. But to be honest, I have not really <laughs> reached out to the people that I know do these things. So... <laughs> um good okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably make for an interesting interview to get their side of the it story definitely as to would. why you know they're like that yeah um you know what let's 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 get on the next thing here you had also mentioned something about psycom yes uh, what might that so be? that is science communication which is basically just what we talked about um it's just communicating difficult terminology and ideas to more basic level language and understanding. A great example would be if you know of him, Bill Nye. Yes. 
Bill Nye is a famous, possibly the most well-known science communicator of at least my generation. Bill Nye, the science guy. We as children grew up on him in our classes. He was the one you went to for anything science related. He explained everything in fun and exciting ways. He did experiments, he did um, social things. He just, it was fun. He made science fun and in a way that it's easy to understand. So what I'm trying to do is the same thing, but just with a more higher level, obviously topic that is more specific. So it's not just fun, ha ha. Um, it's definitely more scientific still, but I'm doing it in a way that makes it so the information is easily accessible to anyone who wants to read it. Like when I write, I don't write in a scientific method. I write in a journalistic method and that serves me for my purpose right now. Obviously I do my, I say, I save my academic writing for school, but for my purposes for World of Paleoanthropology, I'm writing to an open audience. I want it to be open to everyone to be able to come read and enjoy and understand. I want to be able to explain that, no, we didn't come from chimpanzees. We had a common ancestor that we evolved from and evolved, 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 et cetera. Um, so that's what science communication is. It's literally just the act of getting the information from the scientists to the public. Very good. Now, you had uh, mentioned something interesting, and I was actually going to, uh, if we got to the question, ask you, uh, what theory of evolution do you believe? You just touched on it slightly there whenever you said, you know, about the you know, not coming from chimpanzees in a sense. So are you referring to multi-regionalism versus the out of Africa theory? Well, either way, whatever you're, whatever you feel, however you feel evolution came about. Like me, you know, I, I do uh, find it in interesting that, you know, it, it's possible that we came from, uh, you know, a chimpanzee or an ape and, you know, we just, uh, you know, our minds just developed, you know, uh, more intelligence and that sort of thing. Uh, what what sort of evolution do you think? So I follow the, what is, I would consider the generally accepted current of events by most paleoanthropologists of this day and age. There are of course some holdouts of some other theories and there is some interesting, you know, things that you can't explain, but one-offs don't really throw off an entire idea. So I believe that we started out as about 10 million years ago in Africa as a chimpanzee-like creature, more probably like a bonobo. And then we have this gap where this creature lived and it evolved until about seven million years ago where we get another glimpse in time where we get two mice, Sahelanthropus chidensis and like Auroranin tungenensis and we start to see that they aren't the same as they were before and they're not chimps and they're not bonobos and they're not a breed between them. There's something different. There are qualities that are different. For example, it's debated and a recent paper is showing that it's 
against this, but I believe, and there are others that believe that Tumai, Solentibus tridensis, actually was a biped and walked on two feet, which of course is something chimps do not do. They're anatomically incapable of walking on two feet for extended periods of time. And so this would be something very groundbreaking. Um, but then you don't have, there's this gap in the fossil record. We really don't have anything till about 4 million years ago where we have the discovery of Artipithecus uh, by Tim White and his team in the Afar region of Africa. And then we get a better glimpse into this and we see that Artipithecus is an upright walking primate that we now see from a recent paper swung probably um, from below the branches through the trees via brachial um, locomotion. And we're learning more and more about Artipithecus, but then we go a little farther in the future. We have Lucy and then obviously that was a huge explosion in what was going on. And we really began to understand that there was maybe this line kind of. Now, the problem is for a long time, people thought there was this a linear evolutionary line. And the thing that someone interested in this really has to understand is evolution did not occur linearly. It did not occur in a line. It wasn't Artipithecus, Anamensis, Afarensis, Sediba, Homo habilis. It wasn't like that. There was no like exact line. And it wasn't a tree either. It wasn't something where everyone came from the base root and spread out from it. The best way to describe it is more like a braided stream where the water comes from the same place, goes in and out in and out. DNA is exchanged here, DNA is exchanged there, and it just continually is interactive with each other until you get different species that branch off on the sides and you just have a continual growth of the general genus and then obviously things die off and get picked off or whatever, they go extinct and you're left with us. And we are the only hominids to our knowledge, you know, who knows, but only hominids to our knowledge that are alive today. And, but as recently as 10,000 years ago, we had Homo florensiensis living on the island of Flores in Indonesia. So we haven't been alone for long, but for whatever reason, and scientists, constantly debate this we are the only ones that are left so then would you lean more towards because there's always the argument that um uh, you know homo sapiens uh i guess that, that's what we're referred to uh kind of killed off neanderthal neanderthals in a sense or do you believe it was more of a um Oh, I don't know, like I don't, I don't, interbreeding is the only word I can think of. <laughs> so um, definitely I'm on the side of, so obviously, as you probably know, there's a lot of theories out there from literally killing them off because they had low population numbers, which we know is true, they did. And there probably was conflict at some regions between Homo sapiens and uh, Neanderthals. But 
in my opinion and in the opinions of other people who are very into Neanderthals, like Rebecca, um, we did not kill off the Neanderthals. They died off. And the most likely reason is climate change and an inability for them to get the resources that they needed, especially with Homo sapiens pushing them farther and farther uh, west, northwest, into colder regions with less resources. So it wasn't combative, but did we have a lending hand in their extinction? Probably. I mean, look at what we do today. We're not out there in every case trying to kill off animals. In some cases, there's people obviously that want that. But, um, you know, Homo sapiens have always been an intrusive species. And I think Neanderthals are no different. I think we pushed them out of their territory and they died off. And climate change just made it worse. But I don't think there was any physical combative like war that finally ended the Neanderthals. Awesome. I appreciate that, man. Good conversation. I, and that, again, you know, I, I thank you for coming on and talking. Now, getting towards the end of things here, I guess, or if you wanted to, that's up to you. Um, I know you had mentioned as well, uh, possibly talking about uh, Neanderthal death, burial, and religion, uh, possible consciousness of thought. So I don't know if you wanted to touch on any of those or. Uh, sure. Um, so generally, the only species known to bury its dead, and bury comes with a very specific definition. It's intentional, it has emotional feeling behind it, it has possibly even religious meaning. So previously we were only known, we were the only, we were known to be the only ones to do this. But then certain discoveries in Israel and in Europe of Neanderthal sites showed that they were actually buried. And the reason we know they were buried and not just put in the ground is one, because of their preservation, the way the bones are laid out, cut marks on the bones. And in one case, I can't remember the name, um, but there is a Neanderthal site where the Neanderthal is surrounded by flowers. And why else would a being do this if they didn't believe in some sort of memorial or afterlife or something? And so we've really had to come to terms the last few decades with the idea that Neanderthals may have been more culturally nuanced than we thought. And as laid out in Rebecca's great book, Kindred, we really see that Neanderthals did in fact have culture and possibly even religion because of the items we find with them. They ha we have found cave art that we can now positively identify as being Neanderthal, which shows a cognitive ability beyond any other animal that we know. The Neanderthals at this point, we have confirmed bury their dead and have a burial ceremony. It's not widespread. They don't always do it. I don't know why they do it sometimes. I don't think anyone knows. We probably never will. But there is a reason that there are some buried and obviously the thought then existed somewhere in the Neanderthal brain. So we know they did it. 
Now, as far as, you know, why it's just, you can only imagine. You can, it's, it's so hard to try to think of thinking like a different animal. Like, how do you put, it's hard enough to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but how do you put yourself in a different species shoes? Even if that species is so close to us as a Neanderthal. So why would you bury something? Well, maybe to just keep it safe from animals, maybe to keep animals at bay, because obviously the smell of rotting flesh can attract predators. Um, you might want to think they're going to sleep and are putting them somewhere safe. I, I don't know. I can't put myself in the mind of a Neanderthal. But the fact that they're doing it is just monumental. And in recent years, we've discovered sites inside caves that are structures that Neanderthals actually built. Um, the remains of structures that they actually built inside these caves, proving just again their sophisticated society. And we just learn so much more about them every day. And their culture just expands, our knowledge of them expands, and they really aren't those dumb lugs that everyone thought they were just because of their morphology. And it's important that we understand that because one, most people, and we actually just discovered recently, pretty much everyone has Neanderthal DNA, whether you're in or out of Africa. And obviously that's a big deal. And with the pandemic going on in COVID, we've actually linked some Neanderthal genes to COVID um, symptoms being worse. So there's modern applications to this thing, but you know, it's just understanding why they did these things is just so hard to do, but we can only imagine. And that I think is really the fun part. It's, it's, it's funny. It's, it, I guess, cause I always revert to, I guess, when, you know, all these um, new discoveries come out, you know, it, it just like you said, you know, in regards to, you know, uh, them burying, uh, they're deceased and paintings on cave walls and it's you know at, at some point it's just like well why would we think anything different we had to learn that from somewhere <laughs> you know mm -hmm. like we didn't just wake up one day and say hey I'm gonna bury my you know my loved one in the ground just just for you know just because sounds like something new to do you know we had to learn these things from somewhere from someone they had to be carried on so it's just almost like, like, well, here's your sign. You know, why do we think anything different of our Neanderthal or Neanderthal ancestors? You know, the proof is in the pudding, I guess they say. I mean, there's definitely that, and that's definitely true. Um, but just to note, we have human burials, and by human, I mean Homo sapien burials, you know, like 250,000 years ago in Africa. So they somehow developed it from their own resource somehow. And again, there's this, there's this, it's called the cognitive revolution. We don't know what caused it. It's even possible that Homo sapiens reaching the ocean and eating seafood caused this to happen. But something changed our brain chemistry and we don't know what it was. And it caused us to literally develop culture all of a sudden. The Neanderthals obviously either carried that on from Homo heidelbergensis or their own ancestors, or 
they developed it on their own. And we just, to think, you're right though, to think that why wouldn't they if we did it, that's just not a way to think anymore. I agree. I agree. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you knock yourself on the head and just say, yeah, no kidding. You know, they, they had to have done it. <laughs> so, but it's, it's, it's awesome. It's, you know, to, to be in this, uh, I guess, I don't want to say era, but this day and age when there are so many more uh, enlightenments in a sense and discoveries about how we came about and what, what got us to where we are. And, you know, again, just like the Neanderthal mind, you know, it's, I, I I like to learn why we think the way we think and do what we do, you know, and it's, it's absolutely has come from our ancestors, our Neanderthal ancestors. So, well, I mean, we're about at the end of it here, Seth, uh, is there anything that, uh, you know, maybe we, that maybe we didn't, we didn't uh, talk about that you want to talk about? You know, we really, um, <laughs> to be honest, my throat's hurting a little bit. I know I've been talking a lot. <laughs> that's okay. Um, that's, that, that's, that's what it's like to be on the other side of it. <laughs> apparently, I feel it now. I feel what it feels like. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we covered a lot of great topics. We turned it a wide gambit, yes. And I want to thank you for inviting me on. Um, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for, for being willing to come on board. And, you know, if there's any way I can steer you or lead you with your podcast, I mean, you're pretty good with the social media side of things. So, you know, trying to start your own podcast shouldn't be too hard for you. Um, I went through turnkey, turnkey podcasts is who I went through. And, uh, you know, they, they walked me step by step and kind of held my hand through the whole thing. But like I said, you know, you've, you've kind of already got your, your, uh, you know, your foot and your, your feelers out there or whatever for your social media. So I think you'll do good if you decide to get into a podcast and, uh, you know, if you start anything new or have anything that you want to get out to, you know, my community, which I'm hoping at some point becomes both of our communities and, uh, you know, definitely give me a ring or give me a, you know, shoot me an email and uh, we'll get you back on. Awesome. That sounds perfect. Well, again, Seth, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. It was some fantastic information and you know i think uh, both of our communities got to got to know you a little bit more and uh, you know i'm sure they're going to appreciate that i agree and hope so as well awesome well you have yourself a good rest of your evening there uh actually you're you're what 6 30 so your evening's just starting huh yeah <laughs> <laughs> awesome Seth. thank you sir i appreciate it of course it was plenty of fun absolutely we'll see you now all right bye-bye well, what did you think, Cave Dwellers? I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Seth Choggy, and as mentioned, I will include all of the links necessary to reach him and the vast array of knowledge put together on his Facebook page and his YouTube channel in the show notes. I am very excited and looking forward to the next episode where I sit down with the one and the only and the very first guest on this podcast, Neanderthal Joe, a.k.a. Joe Lawler. I'm sure the community will be very excited about that. Joe's first conversation on the Neanderthal mind, which was actually episode one, is still the most downloaded episode to date. And that episode was put out November 12th of 2020. 
So join me when we check in with Neanderthal Joe and see what he's been up to. So until next time, cave dwellers. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And if you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast as much as we hope you have, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next episode, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget to leave your cave drawings and or comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.